did did you uh, research much pie for that for that scene? Did you like eat some pie to? Yeah, I actually work next to very very close to four and twenty blackbirds. Um, where every time they take a new pie out of the oven, they hang a sign outside that says fresh pie. That place is dangerous. I know. It's like a, it's like I don't even have to smell. First of all, everything, all the blocks around it smell like pie. But like I'll see that sign and it's like, like yeah. every day. That's what I it's just, for. I eat a time. lot of pie. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, founder and host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event we started in April 2015 at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens, New York. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the panel discussion from our June 13th, 2017 event, which featured Julia Fierro, Brandon Harris, and Hannah Tinty. If you want to hear the readings from this event, just listen to our previous episode. Now, in our panel discussions at LIC Reading Series, we have the Magic Silver Box. So you're going to hear from the Magic Silver Box in this episode. I ask each of our audience members at our events to put questions into the Magic Silver Box. And if I choose that question during the panel discussion, that audience member wins a prize. So let's get started with the panel discussion from June 13th, 2017 with Julia Fierro, Brandon Harris, and Hannah Tinty. You guys made it to the panel discussion portion of the evening. Thank, thank you all for making it this far. Congratulations. I appreciate it. I'm going to talk for a little bit. I'm going to ask you guys some questions and just, you know, have a little chat. And then we're going to dip into the magic silver box and see who in here is a winner. We're all winners, guys. We're all winners. Yeah. We're all winners. <laughs> Really, we are. I'm just tired of all of this winning. You're tired. God. <laughs> I didn't look at Twitter at all all today because there was too Good much. Good job. Thank you. That's a lie. Beauregard <laughs> didn't answer any of the questions you would yeah. want. I thought he wouldn't answer any questions. What's the point? Of Beauregard. What did you say? Beauregard. Beauregard. Yeah. Uh, what is that? Angelica actually had a really funny Jeff Sessions tweet earlier that david responded to i actually caught the whole interaction it's good you know are we talking about twitter threads yeah we can we can let's move, move on. on we can move on let's move on yeah um i was thinking about your, your three books and what we can talk about that maybe is uh, themes that run through each of your books and I, I something that i thought of was this idea of home which is plays a pretty uh, important role, I think, in the Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley. Uh, Samuel Hawley and Lou have lived many places and sometimes moved what within an hour or two they pack up and go. Right? Yeah, they kind of always have to be ready to always leave, ready. so they yeah. don't really have homes, um, which is part of the reasons why she's fixated on the stars because she has these like star charts and a and a um, a planisphere, which is this really cool chart that you can buy. That's like a two circles and. Um, and you can spin it to the right, to the date and the time, and it will show you what the constellations are up ahead. So it was her way of sort of fixing her place. Um, that's the only thing that was continuous in her life. Yeah. The stars. The, the stars, wow. yeah. Something that's quite ancient, how man looks to this. Very man, ancient, yeah. women, humans, man. Why is that the default term? Man. Okay, I'm gonna start talk about like the genderization of languages, um, and then, and then Brandon, of course, uh, in your book you follow different places. You you talk about places that you live, and your relationship to that environment and things that happen there. And in Julia's book, 
We have, um, I think like all of the characters are trying to figure out what their place is there, what in that home. And there's a family that's just moved into the area too. So if you could talk a little bit about what you think in terms of the idea of home and is that something you think about in your work? I mean, I think I think about it in life all the time. Um, I feel like I, you know, I had two like big dreams. One of them was to publish a book and I did that, which is shocking still, and then did it again. And, um, but I would really, you know, I'm like a real homebody and I'm just so neurotic that it's just like torture for me to leave my house a lot. And, you know, but yet I, so I really want like that, I want that home, even though I'm 40 now, I want, I want to go back and like have that place that, but because, you know, my parents, similar to some of the characters in the Gypsy Moss Summer, are seeking a better life for their children. And so they move to places that they can't afford, you know, and it's like an obvious temporary situation, which I'm actually doing with my own children now. Like you move to an area that you- are in LA now. Yeah, and in Santa Monica right now. Well, we were in Brooklyn. And then that became sort of impossible to afford. And so, you know, we went to Santa Monica has has these great public schools, but I think that um, similar to the characters in Gypsy Moth, Leslie and Jules, you know, they make this decision to move to this island. Um, And Leslie who grew up on the island and is kind of like the princess, you know, like the, the prodigal daughter returning to Um, be like the first lady of the island convinces her husband who's black that it'll be okay even though it's a very conservative all-white island and kind of dangles this beautiful he's a landscape landscape architect and dangles this beautiful garden in front of him which i mean it's like the garden that i want well it's (laughs) so much beautiful more beautiful but it is you know I don't know. It is something that I think I'll always write about in different ways. Um, And even just personally, like now my parents are at the end of their life and they are still kind of trying to find a place. I mean, it's a, it is, it's, you know, it's hard to, to um, not only find a home, but I guess like afford it, which I guess, (laughs) you know, is something that um, you guys are writing about in similar ways too. Segway making rent in bed style. Yeah, you know, on the way over here on the seven train, I was reading an article that was in the Times today about the elusive fifteen hundred dollar apartment. <laughs> um, which is funny because when I uh, when I first moved to New York, that was not so elusive. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, uh, yeah, you know, the concept of home is very important for, in terms of my conception of this work. Um, uh, and, you know, just tr- attempting to find and keep a home uh, has been, um, you know, difficult, really, for my in the 13 years I've been living um, in uh, in New York City. Um, you know, I, I, for me, I, I was definitely trying to get a sense of what it means to call a place home as well. Like, could I call Bedford-Stuyvesant home if I didn't know? 
what Bever Seven was, what it bore, what, what what its borders were. Um, I was told that it was not my home, over and over, mainly by landlords, uh, but then later by um, uh, friends of mine who had been tricked by the same forces into thinking they were living somewhere else. And so thinking about, well, why would someone uh, want to to deceive me about where I was living, where they were renting me an apartment, um, was a question that uh, began this sort of intellectual journey or odyssey into uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant's history, its African-American character, what have you. Um, but, you know, it, it, if for those who've read my book, and a few people have, and hopefully more will, um, I most of the chapters consist of street addresses that in fact are places I lived in Bedford Stuyvesant um, or where people I was dating lived in Bedford Stuyvesant or where uh, famous people lived in Bedford Stuyvesant, say Jay-Z or uh, places that speak to its history, like the uh, address for the Weeksville Heritage Center, which is this remarkable museum um, that it sort of commemorates the, uh, the legacy of Weeksville, which was one of the very first uh, African-American settlements in Brooklyn, um, one of the free, first free black communities, period, in the country. Um, and the idea that uh, other people have tried to make Bedford-Stuyvesant their home in a variety of ways uh, with various levels of success, um, hopefully echoes with my own tale of trying to um, you know, make my rent and, and be able to continue to live there. Um, I, I just moved recently out of Brooklyn. Where? Uh, to Hamilton Heights, uh, which most people refer to as Harlem. And um, I have an apartment that's less than $1,500. Uh, but how far I will have to go uh, out of the sort of uh, the spaces that I once knew, that I once moved into uh, sensibly because they would be affordable – um, to, to continue living here is a question that um, uh, I've, I've yet to find some sort mm -hmm. of, I don't think there will be a definitive answer, you know? Like, um, so yeah, I, I, home is, you know, very important to what we're doing. Something you bring up the, these rent costs in the Times article, because something that I, I like to ask, and I know Julie, you did live in New York for, and it's, you're still kind of bi-coastal. I'm bi-coastal. Kind of. She's kind of, she's like, tell so. everybody that. No, I am. But, but when we come back, I'm like, what? where are we going to go? I don't yeah. know. New Jersey, maybe? Wait, are you coming back? Eventually, yeah. You know, like in a year or something. Can I come live with you? Um, <laughs> I know, and change is so, there's so much change. Yes. I don't like change. But New York's like the city of change. Right? Yeah. Sorry. You, no, no. Well, well, you taking her in could be the subject of her next book, maybe. Or your next yeah. memoir. <laughs> or right. your memoir. What, yeah, the first one. Um, <laughs> I was like, I just want to speak to that for a second. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite essays about this is um, Colson Whitehead's in, in The Colossus of New York. He says, like, you're a New Yorker when you're able to walk down the street and say, oh, like, that used to be, that restaurant used to be a laundromat. And like mm. before that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was it was a bodega. And before that, you know, it's like you, when you know the history of because things flip so quickly. Yeah. So yeah. you basically have to live here for a year. Yeah. Or like six <laughs> months, basically. And then you're a New Yorker. But I, I just love that 
image is somehow sort of because yeah. I remember feeling it's like you get this nostalgia even though you've only lived in one place for like six months you're like oh I remember when that was a longer that <laughs> I, know, I always feel like like old crotchety like, I remember it's when. very quick to get to that place yes. like it doesn't take long you take yeah. this ownership of the space in a way right yeah. you're like, it's kind of a tricky tricky thing but so you all either live in New York or have or kind of live in New York <laughs> Um, and New York is an expensive place and it's a hard place and you are writers and that's not an easy thing to do and it's not a lucrative thing to do. How the hell are you writers in New York or bi-coastally? Uh, well, I, I mean, you, no. Okay. Um, I have other jobs. I have a lot of jobs. Yeah, I have a lot of jobs. I have too many jobs to be as good at any of the jobs I have as I want to be, which um, yes. is one of the, I feel that. Uh, I feel like this is a generational issue too, because when I explain this to people in their sixties, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I teach. Uh, well, I used to, maybe I'll keep doing it, but I, I doubt it. Uh, at least for the short term. Uh, but I teach, uh, I, I do a lot of journalism. Um, I program a film festival in Tennessee. Um, I do a little light programming for other festivals. Um, but this book is very much about how I did, I, how I kept living in New York as a writer before I had any of those other jobs, which all weirdly were um, things that came out of my work as a filmmaker and then later as a, a writer. Those opportunities uh, came to the fore. Um, but mostly I've just hustled, you know? I mean, I, I've like... Uh, driven trucks on movies produced by people in this room for a hundred dollars a day that sold at Sundance for millions um, <laughs> that those people don't even like, I might add. Uh, that movie will remain nameless. But, you know, I, I've um, uh, written term papers for college students. Before I was a college professor, I was someone who's helping them uh, play, plagiarize work. Uh, uh, I've dealt drugs. I've uh, I've uh, worked any number of menial uh, jobs to to stay here in New York, continuing to pursue uh, the things I, I think I'm good at. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel lucky. I'm in the same boat. I mean, I feel lucky. Like my parents had everybody in my family working from like as soon as you could get a worker's permit. So like from I think it was age 15, and then we were all working pretty much from there on. I mean, having like weekend jobs or nighttime jobs or whatever. So I, I it, they taught me an important thing, which was, you know, you work. That's what you do. So I think at like one point last year, I had five jobs. So it's the same sort of thing. You just cobble it together. Um, you just make it work. And, and, and then so there are periods of time where I'll take a lot of extra jobs to try to store up a little bit of money to then have a little bit more time to write. And that's the nice thing about having the flexibility of, of all that. But it's, it's not easy. I mean, you go to pawn shops sometimes. Like that's just sort of, that's like being an artist in New York. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Strand. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, I said this really awkward thing at my book launch the other night because I was nervous and tired and my editor's like sitting right there and I'm like, yeah, you know, most of the day I answer emails. Like I answer just a hundred emails a day for Sackett Street. Um, and I was like, and you know, and I'm like, and then I just write <laughs> like really kind of, you know, just when I, when I have to. 
And, um, and I'm like, and then I said, because if I just relied on writing, I'd be broke. And I was like, hi, editor. But, um, you know, I think also that I am a, a workaholic in a way that, and also, you know, I'm very lucky in that I, I, I started this. So when I was in college, I went to a fortune teller, even though I don't believe in anything except psychology and fear and um <laughs> and she was like and i had a crush on this guy and i wanted her to be like him he is the one and of course it wasn't him but she was like you're gonna be a business owner and i was like what i'm gonna be a writer or like a broadway star or something exciting and and she, you know i am a business owner but i think that I'm lucky that I get to do something I love, right? I know Hannah's the same, you know, um, whether it's teaching through Sacka Street or running the Sacka Street Writers Workshop, but it is like, you know, a full-time plus job. So it's, you know, it's really challenging to fit in the writing. And I think if I only wrote, and I have some friends who like that's their, they write full-time, that's their. Oh, wow. I know, I try not to hate them. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that I would be unsatisfied in a certain way because my identity as a teacher and mentor and director of the workshop is, is where I feel most confident and, and proud of. I mean, like the Sac Street Writers is my life's work. Um, but it is hard and definitely takes a, took a toll, takes a toll physically you know, to write on top of that. Um, it's a good thing I can't help but do it or else I'm miserable to be around. That's a that's a really good point that because there is a lot of rejection and and um, you don't know where something's going to go when you're writing and maybe you don't get positive feedback forever. But if you're doing something that you're proud of, Mm -hmm. that can kind of feed (laughs) that need, you know, Um, I realize that it's it's getting kind of late. So I'm just gonna ask a couple more quick questions and dive into the magic silver box. It's like 10 o'clock, guys. It's because we sang and went crazy. It was a tambourine. Um, I, I want to read a quote that I picked up um, that I think was beautiful um, that I found in an interview with Hannah that's a T.S. Eliot quote. Um, and uh, in this conversation you're having, talking about uh, you went to Whidbey Island. I know Whidbey Island's important for you in your, in your uh, writing history. Um, the, the quote from T.S. Eliot is, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. And you know the other side of the question of being in New York, it's expensive, yes, but it's also there's so much and where do you go to be still, or how? What do you what do you do to get into that space to create? Do you go away? Do you how do how does the creation happen? I'm gonna I'm gonna ask that question. Cause it's a pretty big question, and I think then I'll move on to the magic silver box. Um, I'll just say, yeah, so that's quotes from an article that I wrote for the Atlantic um, about. They said like choose a quote that meant something to you or helped you write this book, and that was a poem part of. Um, 
the four quartets uh by t.s Eliot, and um it was sent to me my friend mari les browns is a great poet and she used to she was like she just had this like remember like back when you just had like email lists before everybody just like posted everything on twitter and she would like email out a poem once a week and that was the excerpt that she gave and it was just one of those things where sometimes the right thing comes to you at the right time and i cut it out and put it up over my desk and it's still there and um for me that poem is all about you know you're always thinking about where you want to go and what's next and but the truth is you can't really create anything worthwhile unless you're able to stay in the stillness and stay in that quiet and stay in the not knowing in the place of 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 no knowledge um and uh the darkness shall be the light, the stillness, the dancing. That that to me is, is really important. But as far as like creating that space for myself in New York, um, for me, it's always, I'm usually switching it a lot. Sometimes that's like my kitchen table. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, I'll swap apartments with a friend of mine who lives in another city and they'll come stay in Brooklyn and I'll go wherever the hell they live. Um, wherever the hell they wherever live. the hell they live uh, and uh, and then sometimes I'll you know go to places like Whidbey Island I do like to get out of the city and get into an, a natural place sometimes and that really helps I get a lot more writing done I find so sometimes I yeah ache about that a lot and sometimes music will help to get mm-hmm. getting you in the right place no. yeah. Uh, yeah I mean I acknowledged a lot of bands in my acknowledgement and, and musical perform performers because they were uh, greatly important in writing this work. It would have been impossible um, without, say, Gil Scott Heron or LCD Sound System. You know? um, but in terms 50, of that, no, Fifty Cent. <laughs> no, okay. Fifty Cent did not make the Making Rent and Bed <laughs> soundtrack. Now a Spotify playlist that you can all find. Um, but no, I, uh, you know, I started writing this book uh, about five years ago. When I was living in a hallway in Bushwick, I was literally living in a hallway, um, which was a fascinating thing. Uh, not, I don't, uh, I don't think it was legal. I don't think it was legal, but but you know we made it work. Um, uh, and that hallway was really great. I finished my critically acclaimed movie while I was living in that hallway. So I mean, you know, it was, it was a beneficial hallway in a lot of ways. But um, you know, it was uh, finding a space where you can be alone. Um, in your thoughts and where you can have something to say back to the silence uh, can be a difficult proposition in this town, especially if you're um, living in improvised uh, living circumstances. Um, And yet over the years in which I was writing this book, um, I was able to do that in a number of, of dwellings. Um, At one point I actually moved back to Bedford Stuyvesant because most of this book was written uh, in Bushwick and the Bronx and Dumbo, where I lived until about 10 days ago, 11 days ago. Um, uh, but I actually at one point moved back to Bedford Stuyvesant um, to uh, be able to walk to various places that had meant a tremendous amount to me in my youth and that I had spent a lot of time at, um, at sort of a key juncture in the book. Um, and that became actually, I think that really was a major pivot for the book. Like it was essential that I I kind of return to that space, but the nuts and bolts mechanics of like, where do I write? Like what time of day do I write? Um, my life is too varied for me to have that kind of routine. Uh, you know, some mornings I have to go to like a 10 AM press screening of some movie I'm going to write about for the New Yorker or for vice or for filmmaker. And so it's not like I can get up and just write at seven in the morning. 
Um, when I was younger, I wrote a lot at night. Uh, and increasingly, I don't, um, which is odd to me, but it just, I actually just want to go to bed at 1130. <laughs> you know, most nights. Um, so I don't have a hard and fast routine, but I know that it's like getting to the point where I can quiet my own thoughts about everything else swirling around my brain and in my life uh, and get to a place where like, you know, there's some uh, spiritual intellectual silence. And often that requires uh, like the right album and a, a sort of in series of intangible factors that um, remain mysterious to me. For me, that's the bigger challenge is that, is that I, you know, I have so much noise in my head. Um, partly I've, you know, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, which I've had since I was a child. So it's always been really busy up there. And, um, and that can really affect focus. And, um, and I hate being alone. So like the idea of going on a residency for me is like, I'm like instantly like thinking of like a horror film. <laughs> like, like, come on, how can, why, maybe you could fix this. Why hasn't there been a horror film set at McDowell or Yotto? Like one of those residencies with the cabins in the woods. Like I would just be like a mess. And so that's I do whole, this. That's a whole <laughs> metaphor for the process of <laughs> right. work. Yeah. A little bit of the shining mixed in there. And so I don't, you know, I've never been on a writer residency except the Marriott residency, which I made myself. And it cost a lot, sort of. But for three weekends to get this book done, which I really had very a quite tight deadline, and I have these two children, and they're like, you know, around. <laughs> um, I went to the Marriott near our house and just didn't leave for like four days. Like my room didn't leave. And, um, you know, it was incredible and so unhealthy. But gosh, I like went into a place that I've never. So I'm like this binge writer, which I do not recommend. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to die young. No. But um, I also wear earplugs like 85% of the day. And I write at night because now that I'm on the West Coast, everyone goes to bed earlier. And while you're all sleeping, I <laughs> no emails are coming in. Mm. Um, and um, that's also really unhealthy. But also everyone in Santa Monica goes to bed at like 6. Because they get up and like go running. You know, oh, I miss New York. <laughs> but really, earplugs. I mean, yeah, I wear them around my children, and they're like, "Mom," and I'm like, "I can't hear you." <laughs> they're they're old enough to take care of themselves. Mine's only eleven months old. I think I need yeah. to wait for the earplugs. Yeah, yeah. No. child services is coming. So if you want to write, you need to move to the West Coast, and then you can be on the time, time difference. I often feel like I'm on West Coast time anyway. Not anymore, not since I have any kids. Um, let's, let's dive into the box. All right. Prizes, prizes. Okay, so we need to pick one of you to get the first question, and we're gonna do it like this. We're at a bar. 
So I'm thinking of a particular spirit, like alcoholic spirit, <laughs> not like a ghost. And um, you are each going to tell me the name of the spirit, and whoever gets it hopefully gets this question. Julia. Um, Jin, is that a spirit? That's a spirit. Thank you. Brandon. Mezcal. Absinthe. Wow. Oh my like, gosh. Wow, that's Hannah good. Is so cool. <laughs> that's good. But the winner, and I realize whenever I do this, you have no idea if I'm lying or not, but I swear I was thinking of tequila. And so Mezcal takes it. There you go. Nice. I didn't even know awesome. That. So this Tired is a- of all this winning. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you get your question. Um, so we generally have uh, prizes donated by local Queens businesses. Um, we also have that tonight. But in addition, since we've been cleaning in our home and, and sorting things out, I'm giving away stuff from my house. <laughs> and we have, along with a drink ticket to the bar, these coasters from the Out of Print Company, which is a cool company that does like books-related merchandise. And it's for, uh, it's, it's the sci-fi wow. coaster set. That's cool. Because cool. yeah. I have too much stuff. Um, all right, so let's see. What do we say? You? All right. You, Brandon, you, you winner? All right, let's ask you this, Brandon. What was the last thing that surprised you? Who asked this question? Are you here? You get coasters! That's a good one. The, the very last thing that surprised me. Yeah. Wow. Um... Uh, I was surprised by how many people came to see the landlord last night. We had a nearly full house in a hundred plus seat cinema. It's part of the screens you're doing. It's part for of the, the screening book. series that's uh, in conjunction with the with the release of Making Red and Bed Yeah, and if you haven't seen the film, uh, find it. It it contains multitudes. It's really a remarkable movie. You want to do a follow up question? This is an unprecedented. <laughs> The first follow-up question ever. Um, but, but we're going to let you, because you're reading here next month. Everybody, Yay! Angelica Breaker. Okay. Um, the film was on Netflix for a while, and it's been taken off. Uh, it hasn't been up there for uh, at least a year. Uh this is the How Ashby movie from 1970. Bo Bridges, uh, Lee Grant, Diana Sands, um, and uh, Lou Gossett Jr. I think that you can find DVDs pretty readily. Um, you know, eBay, uh, Amazon. The same place where you go to buy every like cultural product now. Like the three corporations that run everything. Just ask them. You know. <laughs> Give your money to the man. No, give your money to Astoria Bookshop. Give if your money you to Astoria Bookshop. <laughs> All right. So now the next question is going to go to one of the ladies. And I, Julia and Hannah, I'm thinking of a four-legged animal. <laughs> Let's mix it up. Hannah. Anteater. A deer. Julia. Coyote. Coyote. Oh, that was such a West Coast answer. <laughs> no, no. Fun fact about coyotes. 
coyotes have roamed this very area. Oh my gosh, that's right. Maybe that's why it popped in my head. I Maybe remember that. I read that article. You read that article. It was, was right before it came here. It was out here. I even tweeted about it. A couple it. years ago. Yeah. Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. And Nicole Heratunian read that oh my week, gosh. and she has a story about coyotes. It's true. Everything so, makes sense. Despite all that fun facts about coyotes, coyote. you're not the winner. No. Um, <laughs> Because I was thinking of unicorn, and I think that a deer—that's like a different genre. Is it? Okay, sorry. I, sorry. You know. Uh, no, I said an anteater actually, not a deer. You were gonna say anteater. I know. I no, said she... anteater. I didn't say deer. I repeated. Did you hear anteater? Yeah. I did. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, so Hannah. It, you do not win. I do not win because I think actually a coyote's probably closer. I thought you said deer. No, I said I'm, anteater. And I'm surprised because like, a deer bad is like question mm-hmm. now. All right. Deer's okay. not me. <laughs> no, it's not your brand. No. Um, okay, Julia. I'm ready. I'm being difficult. Clearly, coyotes were in the air. I just I can't believe I remembered my 2014 tweet about coyotes. It's sad. All right. <clears throat> and whoever asks this question is going to get a gift certificate to Sweet Leaf Coffee. They have four locations, two in Long Island City, one in Greenpoint, and one in Williamsburg. And it's delicious coffee and pastries. If you don't drink coffee, you weirdo. (laughs) Okay, Julia. Yeah. How long did you take to write the first draft of your book? What would you call the first draft? Now I'm going to have to lie. (laughs) Who asked this question? Someone who knows me? I don't know. Um, well, that whole binge writing thing definitely helps in this position about, you know, this particular situation. Um, I am a fast first draft writer because partly because of my OCD, it's very uncomfortable to have a whole novel in your head. And I actually do feel that my only like special superpower skill in life is that I can hold like a whole book in my head. I know it's crazy. And um, so it took, let's say five months. Wow. 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 I know. And then like another six months of revising but you know, I have to say that I my my blood pressure is high, and so is my sugar, and my cholesterol. And like, I'm only forty, so I don't think I'm gonna do that again. But it is a very, again, like the obsessive thing, and also it's a story that very briefly, I had thought about for almost two decades. Mm-hmm. I had. So I do a lot of, now that I have less time to write, I do a lot of preparing, whether it's thinking, taking notes that I never look at again, sending myself like 21 line emails a day. So when I sat down to write the book, I had like hundreds of pages of notes that I didn't even look back at, but, and I had, you know, sort of sketched out the characters in the world and so, but that first draft, which is so uncomfortable for me, I just, I just really, and then the revision is where, you know, yeah. I mean, this is why I don't like writing stories because 
for short stories, you have to be aware. You have to stop yourself from writing like 10 pages of exposition. And I just like to go, I just like to, I write to escape, you know, so I'm sorry. No apologies. <laughs> it's interesting because there's also that part of writing that is like the two decades that is also part of the writing. Yeah. That is not, yeah. For me, it's the biggest part at this point because I have so little time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, we are down to, uh, Hannah, you don't need to guess any animals that I always wrong. don't hear correctly. <laughs> All right. What you got for me? Um, I got a question for you, and whoever asked it is going to get a gift certificate for good for in-store purchase at the Astoria Bookshop. Oh, nice. Queens only independent, only, excuse me, general purpose bookstore. It's a big one. Though we do have a couple more coming, but you are the only one for now. That's true. Mm -hmm. And the first. Yeah. All right. Hannah, do you concern yourself with who might be your audience? Who asked this? Wow, are you here? You get questions. books. Do you think about audience when you write? I try really, really hard not to because I, I find myself when I think about um, who I'm writing for, it freezes me up completely and uh before i started working on the 12 lives of samuel holly i wrote about 200 pages of a book that well just went into a drawer and i was writing it really just because i felt i'd finished my my last book the good thief and i'd finished all the promotion for it and i just felt like i should be writing so i was putting in the hours but everything about that book was really dead it had no life and uh yeah, I mean, a bunch of things went wrong for me, and I, I'm really glad I made that decision to cut the ties, and um, and I and I just sort of hit myself. I think sometimes it's actually a really good thing to write from a low point or to create from a low point because you you you're at this place where your back's against the wall and you're like you've got nothing to lose, and when you have nothing to lose, you're gonna fucking shoot for the stars. You're just like you know it doesn't matter. Like I'm just gonna do it. Um, and, and like, for example, um, in the 12 lives while I was working on it, um, a whale showed up in the book, uh, just, just sort of magically sort of like, blah, 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 like came to the surface while these guys are like on a boat, that Sammy seems, Holly and his buddy. That seems amazing. Yeah. They're sort of like, they're, they're trying to get away from this guy who's trying to shoot them and they're like going across the sound and, um, and this whale just showed up and immediately I was terrified because I felt I can't have a whale in my book. Like, like I was like, I'm not a good enough writer to have a whale in my book. I'm just totally not a good enough writer to have a whale in my book. And uh, and I just took it out. I just took it out, like immediately took it out because I just felt like that's Melville. Like that would just be like, that's reaching way too, that's like saying I'm like him or something. It's just like, it's way too much. Or on the other flip side, on the flippity flip side of that, it's like whales are really cheesy. It like makes me think of, you know, Star Trek Four. You know, with like Spock, like mind melding with the whale. It's whales like the like, worst one. Yeah, I know. And it's like, that's where my mind goes. Like, like whales are either like, like unicorns. They're like super cheesy or they're like Melville. Hey. And like, you can't touch that. Right. So um, I actually had to convince myself that no one was ever going to read my book in order to put the whale back in. Um, and then when I said, I was like, no one's going to read it. No one's ever going to see this fucking thing. Just put it back in and see like, if no one was going to read it, how would you try to make it work? And I did, and it worked in the end. And I'm glad that I 
you have to play these psychological games. I have to play. I mean, maybe these guys don't, but I have to play psychological games with myself in order to get the work on the page. And then once it's on the page, then I have something. Yeah. Then I have clay to shape. Then I have something to uh, to dig into. But uh, so when I, I try really, really hard not to think of of who might possibly want to read about whales. Wow, that's yeah. that's great. You did a way better job than that Star Trek movie, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Movie sucked. All right. You guys are champions. It's like 1030 and you made it. Yes. Thank you, audience. Thank you, audience. Thank you to Hannah, to Brandon, to Julia. Big round of applause. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years. LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. <laughs>